year 802. Why was ancient medicine lost? And how did the revival of medicine begin? Today we are talking about the year 802, or more precisely about the mysterious period that preceded it and made that year so special for us. This is six centuries starting from year 216 and ending in year 802. What is about the six centuries? During that time, ancient medicine was almost completely lost. All that was happening then, day by day, was the loss of knowledge. This is Labora Verum. My name is Ed Kenalosh. Hi. This period began in 216. Galen, the last giant of ancient medical science, died that year. You might say that the fall of Rome happened shortly after that, so what to expect? But in reality, after Galen's death, there were about 250 years left until the end of Western Roman Empire. I would say that 250 years is quite a long time to make one or two discoveries, but no new significant medical advancement has been made. Then the Dark Ages hit Western Europe. We believe that the lack of scientific achievements in that period is understandable. People dreamed of only one thing, to survive. But other regions, other countries continue to exist in the world, right? And yet, until the 9th century, everything that happened in medical science was, at best, a rewriting of what was already known. We remember the first steps of medical science in Western Europe after the Dark Ages. Autopsy, quarantine, battlefield surgery. The ancient world either did not make these advances, even though the ancients were within an inch of them, or, on the contrary, decided to take a step back, like autopsies that were banned shortly after Galen. The plague of Justinian in the 6th century did not lead to the invention of quarantine. The numerous wars that ultimately crushed Rome did not lead to the development of military surgery. Why? In year 313, Constantine the Great declared the freedom of faith. Actually, in ancient Rome, you wouldn't be able to surprise anyone with freedom of faith. The difference was that Constantine lifted the ban on Christianity from the previous reign and began to openly prefer Christianity, favor it. But freedom of faith means freedom of faith. 200 years later, already after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, there were still open pagans in Byzantium, mainly in one specific area of life, in science and education. In year 529, Emperor Justinian I closed all philosophical schools in Athens, putting an end to the tradition going back to Socrates and Plato. The Byzantine intellectuals lost their livelihood. The scholars deprived of their profession went to Khosrow I, the Sasanian king of kings of Persia. Rumors described him as the Plato's ideal sovereign. However, reality turned out to be very far from the ideal and the emigrants had to return home. They were not welcomed with open arms, but allowed to live in peace. No students are philosophy writing, though. Some other Byzantine scholars nominally converted to Christianity, but secretly maintained an interest in non-biblical science. Secrecy can sometimes work in studies of history or general philosophy, but in medicine you need to see patients, which is the opposite to secrecy. As the result, the beginning of the 6th century was the last generation of pagan intellectuals in Byzantium. What about Christian schools? Undoubtedly, the largest of them was in Constantinople. It's the palace hall of Magnora or Magnaura, or the school of Magnaura, or the Pandidacterium, 
which means involving all teaching. It was founded 100 years before Justinian in year 425. It's interesting that formally that school survived even the fall of Byzantium in 1453, continued to exist as a madrasa and, in a way, reached our days as Istanbul University. Yeah, with huge interruptions and no continuity, but still. The Pandidacterian paid its teachers from the emperor's funds. It had 31 professors. 10 in Greek grammar, 10 in Latin grammar, 3 in Greek rhetoric, 5 in Latin rhetoric, 2 in law, and 1 in philosophy. Even from the selection of professors, it's clear that the Pandidacterian was primarily a workshop for the production of clerks, bilingual, eloquent, legally literate imperial clerks. But uh, hey, what about one professor in philosophy? The only philosophy professor was a scholar on Christianity. What other philosopher would receive a salary from the Byzantine emperor? All the knowledge a person could ever need is already in the Bible. Literally, everything, full stop. Just find the right quote and correctly interpret it. But even such a school was perceived harmful in the 7th and 8th centuries, when there were endless disputes between various Christian teachings and interpretations. According to legend, the Pandidacterian was burned by Emperor Leo III in year 726, along with its teachers and books. Most likely, this is not a completely correct description of how the Pandidacterian was closed, but the very legend's existence shows how society perceived the school. The interruptions in work of the school were so severe that the school had to be refounded in the 9th century and then again in the 11th century. Did the Pandidacterian ever teach medicine? Medicine is first mentioned among its subjects in the 12th century, very late for our story, that is, seven centuries after Justinian. However, medicine even then was taught mainly for exercises in Christian rhetoric. About 50 years later, the sack of Constantinople by the Crusaders in 1204 ended all secular education in Byzantium, including medicine. Okay, we understand. But what about books? Suppose you don't like available formal education, so you want to learn from books. Were the books available? And the answer is no, no. Ancient libraries did not survive either. The main library of the ancient world was the Library of Alexandria. At its peak it contained 490,000 papyrus scrolls. Average quality papyrus is not a durable material. It wears out within the life of one or two generations. It means that the library had to endlessly create new copies of aging scrolls. Simple calculations show that at least 100 scribes were required to work every day, century by century. You would also need cards of papyrus and bottles of ink entering your gate one after another. Plus the librarians who make sure that the scrolls are in their places, otherwise the scrolls would be there somewhere, but no one would be able to find them, so they would still be lost. And additional librarians are needed to work with readers, and guards, and service personnel. Any interruptions in the availability of funding or supplies would cause the library to decline. It seems this is exactly what happened, little by little. After the 260s, readers no longer came to the library. Sometime between 270 to 275, fighting the separatists, the imperial army probably destroyed what remained of the library, if it still existed by that moment. 
An alternative library, albeit a small one, was in the Serapium of Alexandria. The Serapium, temple of God protector of Alexandria, was burned by the Christians in year 391. This is what people usually mean by the fire of the Great Library of Alexandria. But in reality, that was Serapium. However, it seems that at the time, Serapium contained no books either. Constantine the Great, like any ruler, obviously had his own bureaucratic archive, and he was concerned about the speed of papyrus decay. So he ordered important documents to be rewritten on a newfangled invention, parchment. Among important documents were also Christian books. His son, Constantius II, continued the practice, but on a much larger scale, with special attention to Greek literature. He actually made that rewriting a matter of state importance. And one day, he discovered that the created parchment books were more than just a collection. Accordingly, 100 years after the Alexandria Library ceased to exist, Constantius II founded the Imperial Library of Constantinople. This library once had 150,000 books, or even more. Most Greek classical works known today are known through Byzantine copies originated in that library. This collection of books burned down just 100 years later, in year 473, and at least 120,000 volumes perished. Despite the catastrophic consequences, the fire did not destroy the library completely. A lame version continued to exist. With each passing century, it has been reduced more and more due to natural wear and tear, new fires, looting and religious purges. The second of Constantinople by the Crusaders almost put an end to the library as such, but it is believed that something was left in the library when the city was captured by the Ottomans in year 1453. The problem was not only that the library was almost completely destroyed in the fire of 473, but also that it most likely ceased to be public after the fire. Some historians generalized that no public libraries existed in Byzantium after the 5th century. It's likely that selected scholars were nevertheless granted access to the imperial library as well as church and monastic libraries in response to demonstrated need, but the content of libraries was mainly theological. For example, the largest collection of books outside of Constantinople, the library of the monastery on the island of Patmos, had 15 secular books, one five. Other monasteries had an average of six books, all six were typically religious. Also, there were private books, although not too many. One copy of the Old Testament cost six donkeys, or 300 days of unskilled labor. The private books of the emperor and the patriarch are known, but these books, of course, were not for the public. What about hospitals, one of the most natural places for medical science? In ancient Greece, there were temples dedicated to the healing god Asclepius. Not every city had them, though. The Roman pantheon merged with the Greek one, and Asclepius appeared outside of Greece as well. Romans also had military hospitals, Valetudinaria. Obviously, Christianity wouldn't tolerate pagan temples, even if they were dedicated to a healing god. The Asclepius were completely gone, and for a while it was unclear if there would be any replacement for them. Meanwhile, the Christian church started to develop charitable institutions, places where the suffering and unfortunate could find solace. It became clear very soon that people who visit these places, as a rule, are sick and need care. This establishment was called Place for Strangers, or Xenodochian. 
This word spread throughout the Christian world and was used for many centuries. The very first Council of Christian Church, the First Council of Nicaea in year 325, recommended that such places be built in every city with a cathedral. Easier said than done. One of the first was founded only 50 years later, in 379. Bishop St. Basil built it in Caesarea. It was a large complex near the city, which included an almhouse, shelter and hospital, and was compared to the wonders of the world. This hospital knew the difference between physicians with the head physician, nurses and orderlies. It offered housing for doctors and nurses, separate buildings for different classes of patients, including lepers, libraries and reading rooms. Ephraim the Syrian opened a respective institution at Edessa. It was called Nazocomeio, meaning treating diseases. Gradually the word spread and is now a word for hospitals in modern Greek. If we talk about the word hospital, it comes from the Latin hospes, meaning stranger, the same root as hotel, hostel, host, hospitality or hospice. For a long time, through the Middle Ages, it meant guest house. The first use of this word in English is in 796 as a quick Latin translation of a Greek word xenodochian. It becomes common only in the 15th century. The German word Spital has the same root. Again, we are talking about the 4th and 5th centuries, same time when the Imperial Library and Pandidacterian were established in Constantinople. We also know that much, much later, in the 12th century, Constantinople had two hospitals staffed by male and female physicians. It was then that medicine was introduced as a separate subject in the Pandidacterian. Those later times were also favorable for science in the Islamic world. The Golden Age of Islam began in the 9th century, at the same time that medical science was reborn in Western Europe. But what's in between? Hospitals continued to open, both in Byzantium and in Western Europe. In 390, hospital was established in Rome. In 529, in Gandesapur in Persia. Sometime before 530 in Constantinople in 542 in Lyon in France, in 543 in Monte Cassino in Italy, in 580 in Merida in Spain, in 651 in Paris, yes, that's right, 100 years after Lyon, in 706 in Damascus, the first Islamic one, in 727 another one in Rome, in 738 in Montpellier in France, in 794 in St. Albans in England, the last one before our year 802. By simple counting, it sounds like a lot, but hey, we are talking about like a dozen hospitals opened during five centuries in the territory from Syria to England. Interestingly, believe it or not, some of these hospitals have operated continuously since then and continue to operate today, such as in Rome and Paris. And still one of these dozen will become the seed from which modern medicine will grow. Guess which one? Oh no, 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 not obvious one, not metropolitan, not large one, very distant. Anyway, during the period we are talking about, hospitals were more like monastic shelters than medical institutions. What distinguishes a hospital from a shelter? The work of educated physicians. You as a patient either see someone who is trained to provide medical care or someone who is sympathetic of your pains. Huge difference. 
In that world, there was simply nowhere to find educated physicians. There were no educational institutions, no teachers, no books, no rules, no regulators, no control. There was not even an understanding on what was right and what was wrong in medicine. The title of medicus was given to a new physician in the same way as it was done in the craft, for example, in shoemakers or carpenters, just by the word of a master to his apprentice. I am telling you that from now on you are a physician. And that's it, you are a physician. No wonder that even by expectations of patients of that time, there were simply no educated doctors. A few exceptions only proved the rule. Hospitals had nothing to do with medicine. There you could get only laxatives and bloodletting. That's if you are lucky. More often, the patient received prayers, the opportunity to touch holy relics, and listen to the reading of church books aloud. But let's not put all the blame on church. At least church gave birth to hospitals as we understand them now. And let's not forget about the endless wars that ravaged Western Europe and made life of Byzantium a continuous, minute-by-minute search for ways to survive. Subsequent events proved that the main factor was the lack of people, those people who would be able to move the situation away from the dead point. Hospitals appeared and disappeared. One day the rulers hated education and the next day supported it. Ancient books floated out of nowhere and disappeared into nowhere. Even scientists wrote something from time to time. Not only endless retelling of what had already been discovered, not only translations of ancient works from one language to another and back, but even something new. For example, they identified smallpox and measles as separate infections. But that was the dead end. This was the situation in which medicine existed at the end of the 8th century. And seemingly, this was the situation in which it still was in the 9th century. No difference. But something has changed. If you are looking for what exactly, then here it is. New people have appeared. Not just those who had something to say, but also those who wanted to say and be heard. And those who were there to hear. New people gave a new beginning to already dead medical science. Some Europeans who knew Arabic, for example from Arab-occupied Spain, once got hold on Galen's lists translated into Arabic. These people translated these works back into Latin, not because they needed it, they knew Arabic, but for others, those who didn't know Arabic. It immediately turned out that in addition to Galen, there were other ancient authors. Hippocrates, for example. Now, in Europe, there were several people who owned private libraries of three, four, or even five books. The paths of these people sometimes crossed and, a new coincidence, one day they discovered that together they had a dozen different books. Or maybe not a dozen, still five. But if taken together, five complete copies, not a single missing part. The joint private library attracted many curious people. Those curious people stayed at the place where the library was, at least for the time needed to read the books. Some came, some left. The number of people interested in the library was small, but more or less stable. People who studied books soon came to be called those who study, or students. By definition, the students were educated people, because they needed to read text in classical Latin. And not just to read Latin, but also to understand Latin, and moreover, understand very complex passages in Latin. For such people, learning from books provided another, additional knowledge to the existing Latin literacy. This new knowledge was above to what they already knew, so what they learned was called higher education. 
The owners of the books were not only willing to make their books available for others to read, but they were also willing to recount their contents to those who would listen. Obviously, the owners knew their books better than any of the new readers. Sometimes the owners could even explain difficult points or even give their own interpretation of authors' ideas. It was somewhat similar to the behavior of Christian preachers, but about medicine. Such people were called public teachers or, in Latin, professors. Together these people, students and professors, were seen as a separate and distinctive group, a community, a guild, or in Latin, universitas. That's what they called themselves, universitas magistorum et scholarium, or community of teachers and students. Yes, that was the birth of universities. The first time this happened was in the Italian city of Salerno in year 802. And this is the year 802 that we celebrate here in this story. Four physicians gathered in one place. Legend has it that a Greek pilgrim, meaning someone from Byzantium, with the name Pontes, found shelter for a stormy night under the arches of the Arsino Aqueduct in Salerno. A Latin, that is someone from Rome, named Salerno, wandered in the same place. The strange coincidence of a person's name with the name of a city shows that in reality we don't really know his name. Salerno was wounded and wore bandages on his wound. The Greek looked closer at the dressings. In the meantime, two more travelers arrived, Hellenes, a Jew, and Abdallah, an Arab. They also showed interest in the wound. That's how these four discovered that they were all physicians. They decided to create a partnership and share their knowledge. A more prosaic version is about several physicians, not necessarily four, who, as a group, moved to Salerno from Monte Cassino. Remember, among the first hospitals, I mentioned the Hospital of Monte Cassino, founded in year 543, 250 years before the time we are talking about. It turns out that it was the hospital in Monte Cassino, who would have guessed, that became the seed from which the revival of medical science began. The doctors somehow maintained contact with this ancient hospital, founded by St. Benedict himself, the monastery located there, and their library. Probably the main reason for their move to Salerno was to settle in an available place relatively away from wars and theological disputes. Why? To focus on complex medical cases, as a group, in a way that we call medical concilium. At the same time, they wanted to retell others what they read in medical books. Quite ambitious and at the same time altruistic, but nothing unusual, nothing that would completely disagree with the mentality of that time. And yet, it worked, and worked so well that exactly this group became the first ever university, and the beginning of modern medicine. The Scuola Medica Salernitana, or Salerno Medical School, became the most important source of medical knowledge, unrivaled medical practice in Western Europe, source of original scientific books for the next five centuries, an example that was emulated and copied hundreds of times. You would ask about the difference between this young university and the old and respected Pandidacterian in Constantinople. The Pandidacterian was refounded around the same time, it had the reputation, state funding from the richest country in the world, political support of the emperor and the head of church, access to city hospitals and the imperial library, availability of hundreds of the most educated people in the universe to join. 
The Salerno school in its turn consisted of just several strangers who lived in a small town outside of major Italian cities, had a few books and very limited resources. So which school will be the beginning of the modern medicine? The Pandidacterian failed precisely because of its obvious strengths. Too much politics, too many restrictions. Salerno benefited from the fact that it was private, had no restrictions and could do whatever they wanted and it was run by enthusiasts with a dream. This is the story of how ancient medicine was lost and modern medicine was born. There are also a few random but interesting facts about the Salerno school that I'll talk about next time. If you'd like to know more, I would recommend to read Christeller's Bulletin of the History of Medicine and The Lost World of Byzantium by Harris. You can find a detailed list of references, along with the main points of this story and many other stories in our Facebook page. It was Ed Canelosh, Labora Verum. Thank you. Cheers.